Welcome to the Chris Wallace Chronicles. All right, you don't know who that is. Okay. He lives in Australia now, but he lived in Hollywood before Australia and New York before Hollywood. You know, the actor, the songwriter. He was at ringside for the first Ali Frazier fight, Liza Minnelli's date one night. He used to smoke weed with Morgan Freeman. Likes to tell stories, like this one. Coincidences seem to dictate my life in New York. So through impossible-to-predict circumstances, the guy who directed Lorenzo and his friends in Philly got hired to be program director at Channel 5 in New York. So one day, Bake called me into his office and asked me if I was ready to give up on-air promotion. This is one of those duh questions. He wanted me to join the program department and start producing TV shows for him. Now, whether it's a TV station in New York City or one in Keokuk, Iowa, if you're there, you have a better shot at moving up than if you're not. I was there. The first show I was assigned would have challenged anyone, let alone novice like me. They had videos in the archives of the quintessential Gilbert and Sullivan performers in the world, the Doily Cart Company from London. They had been in New York a few years previously, and Channel 5 shot these videos. They just sat there in the vaults. Bake thought they might make a show, somehow. But there wasn't much to work with. These wonderful singers were just standing against a blue scrim singing Gilbert and Sullivan. No orchestra, no costume, no makeup, no audience. Just standing there singing solos with piano accompaniment. Sid, the art director, came up with a cutout of a proscenium that made it look like we were shooting on a stage. But that was as fancy as we could make it. Once you got through the arch, all there was was people standing there singing. It might have been great radio, but it made boring TV. Somehow, I found out that Joan Fontaine, who had been a big movie star back in the day, was a Gilbert and Sullivan fan. I contacted her agent and apologized that I only had 500 bucks in the budget, but he took it. So now we had a person to host the show. The set Sid put together for her lead-ins looked like a Victorian drawing room, if you didn't look too closely. I was in the control room when we shot her intros. At a certain point, Miss Fontaine said something to the cameraman. Now mind you, this is a rinky-dink television show with no budget. Whoever was working on it was assigned to it, like me. Nevertheless, she started complaining that no one ever shot her from above, and you could see that she was getting steamed. I rushed down to the stage as if I just had an idea, as if I hadn't heard her. You know, I said, I'd like to shoot that again. I didn't like the camera angle. She flashed a Hollywood movie star smile at me and gave the cameraman the dirtiest look you ever saw. But the truth was, doily cart company and camera angles notwithstanding, that show sucked. Bake gave me a few other equally nondescript shows, and then Dave, who was the only African-American in management, presented an idea for a special from the U.S. Virgin Islands. I got assigned to write and direct the show we were to call The People of Paradise. I had never directed anything, but the attitude was, give it to Wallace, he gets along well with black people. So, Dave, a production assistant named Veronica, Nell, who would host the show, and I took off for St. Croix. I had to act like I knew what I was doing, mostly because nobody else did. Dave was the most hands-off, laid-back producer you can imagine. He pretty much said, you take care of it, and only showed up when it was time to have some fun. We hired a local cameraman, sound guy, and a grip, and stayed in a hotel on one end of the island that was owned by a former New Yorker named Betty. 
She had another hotel on the other end of the island that was hosting a celebrity golf tournament. Because I was technically speaking a New York television director, Betty invited Nell and me to a cocktail party they had for the celebrities at the other hotel. I've been in a lot of situations like that. If you just went by title, I appeared to be an important person. The reality was an entirely different matter. I had the same thing happen when I came to Australia for the first time. I went to Don Lane's birthday party in Sydney and was introduced as a New York television producer. That's when I was doing on-air promotion at NBC. They could call me whatever they wanted. I knew it was just me. So, we're at this cocktail party on St. Croix, and I meet Johnny Unitas, the famous Baltimore Colts quarterback, the Yankee legend Joe DiMaggio, the actor David Wayne, other various and sundry, and a voluptuous blonde from Chicago who wasn't with anyone in particular, but looked very expensive. No comment. Now it's time to film The People of Paradise. Dave had a friend on St. Croix who had been his liaison for this project. I think he'd been a musician in another life. He arranged for us to meet some really interesting and colorful characters from all three of the islands, St. Croix, St. Thomas, and St. John. One was a man who lived in a mahogany forest on St. Croix and worked with the wood as if it were a religious experience. Another was a 90-year-old black woman on St. Croix who had lost a hand cutting sugarcane back in the day. She was lovely and kind and told her amazing story with unbelievable grace. Another was a park ranger on Keneal Bay on St. John. She showed us the fauna and flora that characterized the area that was once owned by the Rockefellers. Then there were the compulsory interviews with government officials on St. Thomas. In the midst of this, somehow or another, we developed this, what can I call it? I suppose a game, or maybe a, maybe a prank. I don't know how it started, but we began hiding this block of wood, a door jam actually, in different places on various people. The idea was not to get stuck with the block, as we ended up calling it. One time, Eric the Grip would find it in his bag under the gaffer's tape. Everyone would get a big laugh. Then Eric would plant it on someone else, unbeknownst. This went on for the entire week or so that we were there. One of the best ones was when we had a shot of Nell gazing out at the sunset. I positioned her and told her not to turn around until I yelled cut. So she strikes this gorgeous pose, silhouetted against a brilliant sky. We got the footage I wanted, and I told the crew to back off quietly while I got rid of the block, putting it in the sand behind Nell. Then I scampered away and yelled cut. Now she was stuck with it. Before we left, I had the mahogany guy make small replicas of the block with the people of paradise burned into the wood and gave one to everybody involved. I still have mine, and I know Veronica still has hers. We had a rap party and celebrated our success. Dave was there for that. I was really happy with what we'd shot and couldn't wait to get back to New York and begin editing. I must have stayed a day or so longer than the others because I flew out on my own. The block had been planted on somebody before I left. So, I'm on the plane, the door is secured, the engines start to whir, and I'm safe. Then... The flight attendant comes to me with a beautifully wrapped package with a big red bow. I didn't even have to guess what was inside, but I got the last laugh. After I got back to New York, I went to a used bookstore and luckily found a large volume that was about island living or something like that. I wrote a cover letter to Betty thanking her for all she'd done and sent it and the book as a gift. I had carved out the middle of the book in the shape of the block and stuck it inside. Back at Channel 5, before I even got a chance to review the footage, the general manager decided that the gesture of doing the film was enough and pulled the plug. I never saw what I'd shot. 
That was also the end of my directorial career. But the production I was proudest of was the Harlem Cultural Festival. Now, there's a little history to this. If you Google the Harlem Cultural Festival, what you'll find is an article in Rolling Stone about the 1969 festival. But that's not where it began. It started two years before that as a very small local event. Tony Lawrence started it. The community responded with enthusiasm. Tony hooked up with a show business lawyer, and in 1968, they pitched Channel 5, and a deal was done. They hired an outside director to produce and direct. Let's call him Gene. I became his associate producer. There were to be five shows live from Mount Morris Park in Harlem, which we'd tape and edit down to an hour special. Now, let me give you a little more history. In April of 1968, Martin Luther King was murdered in Memphis. In early June, Bobby Kennedy was murdered in L.A. Black communities across the country were tinderboxes. There had been riots all over the place. Our shows were in late June and July. So Gene is in the remote truck with all the tech people, and I'm out on this huge stage. Just me and the cameraman. The white cameraman. The only black person on the crew was the AD, and he was in the truck. Everybody was worried about what might happen. The first show came off without a hitch. It featured Diana Sands and maybe another actor or two, the Count Basie Band, and Herbie Mann, the jazz flute player. We shot on Sundays, and on Mondays we began editing. Gene got it started, but on the second day he pulled me aside and told me that he was going to have to give up the job. He swore me to secrecy and told me that he'd been diagnosed with cancer and wouldn't be able to finish. I took over the editing, and it aired the following Sunday night at an hour when most people went to bed. The high ratings surprised everyone. Channel 5 had pretty much buried it, so no one was prepared for its success. They hadn't even sold any advertising. Art Fisher was on staff as a director, and he took over. I was now officially the producer. The next show was more community-oriented, if I remember correctly, and had some local dance groups and relatively unknown performers. It rated, too. When Art and I went to edit it, we had some kind of artistic disagreement, and he basically said, fuck it, you edit it. So I finished that one, too. The next show had a Latin flavor. We had Tito Puente's band, Eddie Palmieri's, and the percussionist Ray Barreto. Art shot it, but I edited it. It rated bigger than the previous two. The next show had an African flavor. The only performer I remember from that one was the great South African artist Miriam Makeba, but there must have been others. Stokely Carmichael was there with Miriam, but he stayed out of sight. That show rated big. The audiences were estimated to be upwards of 15,000 at each of these events, most of them African Americans, but with some white faces scattered around too. I was on stage for every performance, standing to the side but visible. It was thrilling. I even had an out-of-body experience at the show with Count Basie's band. It was before the show began when everyone was setting up. The stage was set for the Basie band. A couple of the musicians were beginning to come on stage. I don't know what possessed me, but I sat down at the piano. I don't play the piano. I learned two pieces by rote. One was Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, which I played in the wrong key. The other was a Stan Kenton big band favorite, Intermission Riff, that someone taught me. I started playing Intermission Riff on Count Basie's piano. A couple of the musicians decided to join in. Then as more came on stage, they joined in. Pretty soon, I was jamming with Count Basie's band like I knew what I was doing. When it ended, I eased over to my spot at the side and tried to pretend like I wasn't there. The final show was the gospel show. 
By now, the ratings were well-established, and the shows were a huge success. There had been no incidents, everybody was safe, and they enjoyed a fantastic Sunday afternoon in the park, entertained by some of the best black and Latino artists in New York, all for free. The lineup for the gospel show topped them all, in my opinion. It featured two gospel choirs, one from New Jersey and one from New York, and the headliner was Mahalia Jackson, the greatest gospel singer of her time, maybe of all time. The people began arriving earlier than usual. They were dressed in their Sunday best. For them, this was like going to church. It was a sweltering July afternoon. The park was wide open. No shade, but it didn't matter. The women fanned themselves and sweated through their bright clothes, but they were there. Mahalia was going to sing for them, and that's all that mattered. When she arrived, I asked her if she'd sing the Battle Hymn of the Republic with the combined choirs. I thought that'd be a great way to end the television show. She agreed. Then I squared it with the choirs, and they agreed. The choirs each performed and then left the stage. Then Mahalia came on and turned that park into a tabernacle. Someone tried to hold a parasol over her as she performed, but the spirit kept her moving, and the parasol was of little use. The sweat was pouring off her. She mopped her face with an already saturated hanky. I was like everybody else, spellbound by her energy and her amazing voice. The time came for the choirs to join her. I was going to get my big finish. They sang the Battle Hymn of the Republic as if they'd rehearsed it. It was thrilling. I was content. The audience was in ecstasy. Then the DJ who hosted the gospel show went to the mic. He told the audience that Mahalia had asked him to ask the audience to join her and the choirs in singing We Shall Overcome. It was electric. Standing where I was, I could feel the energy wash over me as those 15,000 people joined together in the Civil Rights Anthem. That was my finish. It was cosmic. It was one of the most thrilling, all-consuming experiences I'd ever had. When I edited this show, I planned it so We Shall Overcome would play over the final credits and all end together in a fade to black. It was perfect. All the videotapes from that 1968 version of the Harlem Cultural Festival were erased. There is no video evidence that they ever existed. But I've got a treat for you. I made an audio copy of the Gospel Show, and I'm going to let you relive that final moment with me now. I'm Chris Wallace. In memory of a great American to whom, to whom she was extremely close, and for whose ideals she certainly stood and gave much, I've asked Mahalia if she won't have you join her and all of us in just a verse of We Shall Overcome.
Monday. 